this is uh, this is not the Godfather, but you should still listen to me when I tell you to uh, listen to the 430 Movie Podcast. It's at 430movie.com, and they'll make you a podcast you can't refuse. If you're a fan of the 430 Movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a Star Trek fan, and you haven't already picked up the hardcover edition of the 50-Year Mission, it's time for you to go out and get the paperback version of the 50-Year Mission, which is just out in paperback from St. Martin's Press. This is the complete oral history of Star Trek, the first 25 years, from me and Ed Gross. And if you think you know everything there is to know about Star Trek, think again. The 50-Year Mission, out in paperback now. And if you can't read, the audiobook is still available. Electric Now? What does that mean? It means that you can watch us do these wonderful podcasts and so many other things, too. Hey, uh, Darren. Yes. When I was a kid, I used to love the electric company. You know why? Because I knew one day Morgan Freeman would be a great actor. But (laughs) if there's one thing I love about electricity that's even better than Schoolhouse Rock and the electric company, it's the Electric Now channel. But also, they're turning it on and bringing the power. Yes, they are. <laughs> and we're turning you on. And f- no, 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 that's a highly inappropriate. All. Okay, well, we are turning on the power here at Electric Surge, where you may have, for the last year or so, been enjoying these amazing audio podcasts like Inglorious Trexperts, The 430 Movie, Best Movies Never Made. Now you, you can watch You ain't them. seen nothing yet, no, but you now you can. <laughs> you can on Electric Now, available on Stir TV and Distro TV, which you can download from your favorite app store, and soon coming to the Electric Now app. Get to see us as you've never seen us before, <laughs> because you've only seen us in the theater of the imagination. Now we're going to be on your tablet, on your telephone, on your TV, and in your house. With <laughs> the call is coming from inside the house. So make sure to check out Electric Now, streaming now on Stir TV and Distro TV and coming soon to the Electric Now app. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Secret dreams aboard ship captain might have. Funny how they are on this planet. Actually like being taken advantage of.
suppose you had all the space to choose from. And this was only one small sample. Wouldn't you say it was worth a man's soul? And I am very excited about today's episode. Not just because we're going to talk about the Green Orion Slave Girl, but because, I got to tell you, first of all, um, I've been fascinated with Susan Oliver for a long time. And uh, I had no idea what a really incredible woman and pioneer she was in the business until I saw this terrific documentary called The Green Girl. And I was at, um, a couple years ago, uh, we were at the, I think you were there too, Darren, uh, I was with Ed Gross and uh, and possibly Darren at the uh, Creation Convention in Vegas, and we came across a booth, uh, and I was I was stunned that somebody had made a documentary uh, about Susan Oliver, and he was off you know as as you all those weekends where you're you know people are going by and you're going to everybody. And it was probably the easiest sale he ever made. He says, oh, I have this documentary I did about sold done, so um, uh, bought bought it. Um, we later Ed interviewed uh, our next guest for our book, The Fifty Year Mission, now out in paperback. And uh, I really something I really wanted. It was important to me to have on the show because I I feel that Susan Oliver is someone who has been largely lost to the sands of time. People know her as the Green Girl, but there's so much more to her story. And so we have the uh, director and producer and writer of that documentary, The Green Girl, um, here uh, to talk about the incredible career of uh, Susan Oliver, uh, George Pappy. So welcome, George. For fans of the original Star Trek, there's no forgetting Susan Oliver. Susan Oliver's Vena is really kind of uh, iconic. When I first put up a website, I had more emails from people about Susan Oliver than any other subject. Who are you? You know who I am? She was on wagon train four times. Route 66. Susan was in three of those. She did an early Ozzie and Harriet episode. The Twilight Zone. Susan Oliver. You have Susan Oliver, who was almost always on the first choice list to be the female guest star in these shows. She was just so versatile, sort of like a chameleon. And for television, it was perfect. You liked her. You believed her. When the close-up was here, she was thinking. I think what counts is taking charge of your life. Susan Oliver makes final preparations for a solo flight to Moscow. She won five world records in flying light planes. She was one of the first women to fly the Learjet. I'll never know why she turned down a seven-year contract to Warner Brothers. Why isn't she doing a series? And there were very few actresses who were that prolific who didn't get a series. She turned it down. That is surprising. She didn't want to be locked into anything. She didn't want to be controlled. She wanted to write. She wanted to direct. I want to make films. Do you realize that in my 18 years in the business, I've never worked with a woman director? For a woman to direct a film would be like a woman playing professional football. That's how bad it was. She directed a MASH. That was a very prestigious show. Our crew just wasn't ready. Wasn't ready for a female director at that time. She should have acted in all kinds of things and didn't have that opportunity because she didn't behave the way they wanted her to behave. She was just so watchable and endearing. What happened? How did somebody who was that good not have the kind of star career that her star power sort of justified?
Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Great and to then you. we also have um, returning to the show. Uh, you know him as the uh, writer of such films as Thor and X-Men First Class. He's a writer-producer on such series as Lore and uh, Black Sails and Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, Mr. <laughs> Ashley E. Miller. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, look, I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary. It's on iTunes now. Mm-hmm. It's also, it, this is news to me in the last month, It's if you have Amazon Prime, you can stream it for free now. Oh, great. Oh, and so you it's yeah. on Amazon Prime. And if you haven't seen the documentary, and everybody knows, you know, I call it like I see it. I don't praise things other than my own books. That's uh, for sure. That, yeah. um, and and, and uh, I love this documentary. I was riveted and fascinated, and, you know, particularly in an era right now where we talk about um, how important it is uh, uh, diversity and, and, and more women in film and television and opening more opportunities. She was such a, a pioneer. Uh, and you know, again, people know, oh, yeah, she was the Green Ryan slave girl in Star Trek because, of course, she, there's that title card at the end of the credits right. where you see her and um, uh, um, She's you know, the famous the famous Desilu card. But uh, she was one of the first, uh, uh, you know, there, there's, there's several, in film, you know, people look at Ida Lupino and a lot of the legendary women who, who were like ahead of their time in terms, but in television, it's Susan Oliver. So I, I want to turn to George and if he can just sort of set the table for us, what in the world led you to do a documentary about Susan Oliver of all people? I get that question a lot. I'm, this would have been back in 2011. I'm sitting back on Netflix watching, um, I believe it was The Menagerie, not The Cage, so the Mm -hmm. Mm two-parter from the original series. And as I often do when I watch original series Star Trek, I'll pull out my iPad or my iPhone and look up IMDb. And usually you look at the guest star and you're like, oh, okay, did a couple things in the 60s, one episode of Insight in 1971, (laughs) and then retired from the business, right? I mean, most of that, that's usually the story. And instead... What I saw with her was a literally eight-page IMDb resume. And I have IMDb Pro, so I get the numeric rating. And this is 2011. This is 21 years after she's dead. And she's got a 5,000-something, which is working actor category, not mm-hmm. lead actor. Sure. But you can make a good living and never have to do anything but act and to have a 5,000-something rating <laughs> on IMDb Pro. And I'm like, how do I not know this? I knew her for two things, this Star Trek two-parter and um, that Twilight Zone episode with Roddy McDowell. Right. Um, people are alike all over or something like that. And I just was embarrassed almost that I didn't know this because I'm a big trivia guy. And how do, I, how do I miss that? And who else is missing that? And also, who else is looking her up if she's got a 5,000 rating that mm-hmm. week on IMDb? So that, that kicked it off. And the more I learned about her... I, I mean, for instance, right away I found out she had been engaged to Sandy Koufax, the yep. the Dodgers award-winning, you know, one of the best pitchers in mm-hmm. professional baseball at one point. And then I read that she flew a single-engine plane alone across the Atlantic in 1967. And you know, I, I started doing the the Butch Cassidy and this, like, who is this woman? Right, who right, are those guys? Who are those guys? How do I not know all this? You know, and um, I guess the the the. The off-ramp that I, I set for myself was I found out she had written an autobiography in 1983. And it apparently didn't do very well. And I guess they dumped off what copies there were left um, to various libraries. And it turned out the main branch of the L.A. library had, like, the only copy in the L.A. library system. So I sent off for it. And I thought, okay, if this is bad, I'll return it after one chapter. But instead, I couldn't put it down. Yeah. Um, she built it very much around the flight across the Atlantic and mm-hmm. then did a lot of flashing back to her career. Um, and yeah, I mean, one, one chapter in, I was convinced. I wasn't sure what I was doing at the time. I thought maybe I should write a book about her. 
um, or and then eventually it became a documentary. But either way, I figured if whether I'm, whatever I'm doing, the people she was with, she if she had been alive at that time, she would have been closing in on eighty. Mm-hmm. So everyone she knew was within a say a ten fifteen year plus minus window of that. I better get to these people quick. I think. Um, What's his name? James MacArthur from Hawaii Five O had just died the previous year, and she was very close to him. And I thought that a lot of people, I like, I better get in front of them. And if I'm going to get in front of them, I might as well just have a camera and mm-hmm. shoot interviews. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, it became clear it was going to be a documentary. So that's the way too many words. Yeah, no, but had you <laughs> had you done a documentary before? Never. I had done one, um, well, one and a half feature films, uh, narrative feature films. Right. I'd never done a documentary. Um, but I figured if I could do a narrative feature, I mean, the, the narrative feature I completed right before that, the year before that, went ran on Showtime for two years. Um, so I figured if I could do that, I could probably do a documentary. Um, you know, and, and documentaries are, are pretty easy. It was a, it's funny, just if you're a filmmaker or interested in that, the really the, the learning experience was it's a much different process. It's all in the editing room. Mm-hmm. That's where it all comes together with a documentary. Unless you're just a, a lucky... And I would say, bad filmmaker, it should not all come together. <laughs> it better have a good script and a pretty good shoot uh, preceding all that. What surprised you the most in the course of making uh, the documentary about That's funny. Susan? That was exactly my question. Yeah. Well, like, uh, you know, because already you mentioned a few things that attracted you. To, you know, the fact that she flew the Atlantic, that, you know, she was an aviator, um, that she... Um, uh, he was married to Sandy Koufax. Well, he engaged. Yeah, engaged. engaged yeah. Right, engaged to Sandy Koufax. So what, 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 you know, over the course of making, the, what, what were the things that you found out that were most intriguing? Well, it was almost like death by a thousand paper cuts because every time I turned around, there was something else. Um, I, I, I reached out to her family, and at one point her brother says, oh, yeah, she used to hang out with Rosie Greer who was like a, one of the legendary football players of the mm-hmm. 1960s, the fearsome foursome on the Rams. And, uh, and yeah, I ended up getting Rosie in the documentary. Just little things like that would come up left and right, um, that she had her fingerprints in a lot of stuff. And it touched, you know, she has one of the, she's almost like as, as prolific as Kevin Bacon in terms of that Bacon number and how, yeah, who she's yeah. connected to, especially industry-wise, which, again, is amazing for someone that's been dead since 1990. Mm-hmm. and hasn't done anything since 88, and whose heyday was really over by the early 70s. Hmm. Um, and, and also for me, um, I mean, there was a lot of it resonated for me. I, I didn't have that great an experience in the film industry. Um, I mean, I made my couple films, and that went nowhere. Um, and so I really felt for her, and I understand it was even worse for her to have been made a big deal of when you're younger like that. And let's be honest, basically because you're really good looking. And also she was a fantastic actress. But once she got older, they weren't interested in her mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, she did. And this was an interesting piece that she was inaugural class of the women's directing workshop at AFI. This is back in 74. Yeah. And it still took her another seven, no, yeah, eight years to get to direct a final season episode of MASH, one of only five women that ever did it. Hmm. And she directed one other thing, a Trapper, Trapper John right, Trapper John, first yeah. woman in five years of that show to direct. And they treated her horribly, and they said she ruined the episode. And I, if you remember, if you saw in the documentary, I I went and talked to um, one of the actors who was actually got his directing career started on that show, too. And he said, there's no way she could have ruined that show. And I haven't looked into it. It's the same crew had shot the previous 100 episodes. I mean, they were on autopilot, and they were not a real adventurous show. He even said it in the documentary. They just didn't want a woman. And I had all kinds of people in the documentary said that. That was rare in those days for 
no one, a crew, and one, one of the guys even said, our crew wasn't ready for a woman director. So I felt for her, and just the way she died, too. I mean, she died young of cancer. There's a lot of evidence that she kind of let herself die. Mm-hmm. And I think it maybe is one of those things where you're just sitting there in your slightly decaying mansion up in Laurel Canyon, and you've hit your head on too many low ceilings. I mean, she tried to direct a Next Generation. They told her she lacked a special effects background. I talked to Nancy Malone, who did a couple of um, what did she do? It was the next one um, with someone with Janeway. Which was I'm sorry, oh, Voyager. Voyager. Yeah. Voyager. And she said, "Yeah, I, I I don't have any special effects background." She goes, "In fact, Nancy Malone said I deliberately played dumb so the special effects guys could feel important, like they were helping the dumb woman. How to how do you get this guy to walk through a wall, kind of thing." And she said, "You know, that's that, that's that's a stupid excuse not to let someone direct, but." It was just, and the shame is if she had lived, if, if she had hung in there and if she lived a few years, I think she would have had some decent chances in the 90s, like a lot more women did. Um, she already had her foot kind of in the door. Um, but I really felt for her, and she seemed like such a decent person on so many levels. Um, so, yeah, it was just all kinds of things like that. Um, I almost felt like, I got to say, I, I, the other one that kept going through my mind, and not just who are those guys, was was uh, Dan Aykroyd and Blues Brothers. We're on a mission from God. <laughs> and I really felt that way after a while, especially after I got her family to reach out to me. And they both hosted me. They let me stay with them. Part of them were up in Seattle. Part of them were in um, Virginia. And I got a sense they really were very bitter about what happened to her. None of them are entertainment industry people. Mm-hmm. And they're very high achievers, too. Um, former congressman um, is in her family. Um, they, she could have had quite a, a, a quite a career in something else. Mm-hmm. Instead, she chose the one thing where as a woman in the 60s and 70s, you're done at 40, right? I, it's just, well, you're completely devalued. And, um, and what had happened was some guy from Canada wanted to write a book about her and got the family all engaged around 2000. And then he dropped the ball and he never finished it. Mm. And I felt like I've opened old wounds. I have a moral responsibility to finish this darn thing. And I did. So it just took on this weight, you know, and and I I don't know. It was an interesting couple of years. No, and it's so fascinating because, you know, again, it's it's many of you make a great point. Many of those character actors uh, in in 60 Star Trek, you do research them and you see. Yeah, maybe they did a couple episodes after that, and it's all the same shows. Um, you know, they did a couple of shows before Star Trek, and then you know, in, in the case of the women, a lot of them would get married or leave the business, and uh, never to be heard from again. A few of them are still alive. You know, most of them are not. And and if they were lucky, they would be the guest star that doesn't die on Columbo. Yeah, right. right. And you know, by the time you you get to the late seventies, and you know, like the Love Boat, you know, it's like the it's the, mm-hmm. the last of you you you, see, you know the <laughs> Love Boat and Murder She Wrote. And Murder, That's right, usually right. where those careers end. Mm-hmm. Is Murder She Wrote. William Wyndham. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. And and but um, what's so interesting is is like you said uh, before Star Trek. I mean, she was working steadily. I mean, she was a working actress, getting hired a lot. Insanely insanely. I mean, she would have three a week. And there's so many. That's the other interesting thing that really lent itself to this documentary. You go on eBay, even now, look her up. You're going to find page after page after page of publicity photos of her from the 60s and even the 70s. She was probably one of the most photographed women of the 60s just because her name meant enough to where they were going to run a picture of Susan Oliver in TV Guide or Mm -hmm. in the newspaper if she was on a TV show that week. And um, so there's all these wonderful photos of her. Um, 
that we made ample use of. But she started, and this is, see, this is why I love original series Star Trek. It's really my thing. Um, not only did I grow up during the 70s when it went insanely syndicated and watched them all 50 times, but <clears throat> those actors, those are great actors, and yeah. they're veterans of TV, and they all came in. So she studied at the Neighborhood Playhouse in the early 50s with Sanford Meisner. Mm-hmm. And when I was interviewing David Hedison from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, who knew her, and I hadn't realized they were at the Neighborhood Playhouse together. They dated, and Joanne Woodward was there at the same time. Mm-hmm. McQueen was there at the tam- same time. McQueen was trying to chase down Susan when they sure. were in New York. She wouldn't have any of it. She had a lot of common sense. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> in fact, I think he borrowed money from her. He rode her up to Harlem on his motorcycle and ran out of gas and had to borrow money from her or something. <laughs> But what fascinates me is <clears throat> they all had the same dream, which was let's do the, the, the Brando thing and the, the Joanne Woodward thing, which is come to Hollywood and we get our big break in movies. But most of them getting here in the later 60s, she doesn't come to Hollywood until 57, and a lot of them into the early 60s, they got here too late. And the movie industry is dying. They're making a fraction of the movies they were making 10 years earlier because television has killed the movie industry. And... Ironically, there's a ton of work in television, but it's really, in those days especially, denigrated. It's second-class right. acting work. And, and one of the things I tried to do in the documentary is emphasize people she'd worked with and use clips a lot from the stuff she did. Um, they either were Star Trek people, so you get a lot of tie-ins. Oh, yeah, they're all these are people that were on all these shows and um, or that made it into movies. And almost, and with one exception, all the ones she worked with in those clips uh, that made it into movies were men. Clint Eastwood, uh, John Cassavetes, Burt Reynolds, people like that. Whereas the only one I can think of, a uh, woman that we found, was Mia Farrow, which is kind of a special case. She was dating Sinatra, and then she gets offered Rosemary's Baby. She's super young. Mm-hmm. She's famous from Peyton Place. But for the most part, the women could not make that leap. A few of the men did. Um, so just trying to re you know, emphasize that fact. But so I find it fascinating because it's this own special kind of living hell. Whether you're an actor or a lot of them would wash out of acting and become directors, writers, and you're making a lot of money. And but I, I think it's an, it's its own special kind of hell. Like you you studied with some of the greats in ni- mid-century New York theater. And here you are, 1973, directing episodes of Barnaby Jones. <laughs> you're making a lot of money, but you're not really fulfilled in any way. And for the women, it was even worse because they're not even allowed to do that. And yeah. at best, they're playing. Well, Nancy Malone said it in the documentary. She said by the 70s, uh, there was only so many times she wanted to say, here's your coffee, honey. Right, Because right. that's about the only roles that were left for them, you know. And Nancy was one of the few that was able to get into television production and eventually directing. Um, but there weren't a lot. And you're constantly suffering rejection. Yep. You're being judged on your looks and your performance. And like you said, here's somebody who's heavily trained, who did theater in New York. She comes out here and, you know, really they're, you know, they're judging her completely by her looks. She's getting cast, you know, on a bunch of her looks. And, and then, you know, Star Trek comes a calling. So uh, can we, let's talk a little bit about you know, how she ended up in the cage. You know, there was a, a list of some very prominent people they were trying to get. Um, and uh, uh, Desilu ended up going with Susan. Well, and, and, and the background on that is well, everything you said about her is true. But the other thing is she was very good at very quickly doing the role. And that's a special kind of acting. 
I mean, I, I said a lot while I was making it. You can Anyone can drive a taxi cab for a month in New York and find out what it's like to be a, a taxi driver and then make taxi driver, and that's one of the most brilliant act performances ever. But what do you do when you got the call last night and now you got to come in and do a credible job, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're seeing the script for the first time 15 minutes before they're filming it. And she could do that. Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons she, she wrote about it in her book, that she was familiar with Roddenberry. She'd done other TV shows. She recognized his name as the writer of episodes she'd done. And they might have even crossed paths. And he says he runs that he said she said in her book that he ran into her one day on it might have been over at the Culver City Studios, which I, um but um this was in I think summer of sixty four. And he was pushing her really hard. He said, this is a great role for her. And it is a great role for her because it's five different roles, and that's yeah. how he pitched it. And she's perfect for that. She's like a chameleon. She can literally do lots of different things. And um, I had heard, and I don't, you know, you hear all these stories, that Roddenberry created that list you referred to. I knew it had people like Barbara Eden on it. Yep. Um, that was more, I've heard that that was a decoy list for the the, the studio mm. and network execs so that they'd get off his back, but right. that she seems to imply, and there's no evidence to the country that that she was his first choice. Mm. And that she may not have been their first choice, so you create this big list and say you're considering all these different people. But, but and, knowing Gene Roddenberry, Barbara Eden probably says the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It could be. It could be. Um, I'll tell you this. Um, there was some talk I was listening to in the audience earlier about um, about pilots and which one's the best. And I'll say this about the and I, I've said it before. I think I'm even quoted in your book as saying it. I've said it more than once. Um, I don't think we'd all be sitting around 50 plus years later talking about Star Trek if that show had been based on that original cast. Mm-hmm. And I think the network executives recognize that. I never bought that argument that they rejected the first pilot because it was too cerebral. No. It's got plenty of action. He kills this guy jumping onto his... I mean, there's all this... And plus, what's not cerebral about the telepathy from the second pilot? Um, I think the problem was Susan Oliver acted circles around them. That is not a very good cast. And they don't have great chemistry. Most of the roles are phoned in. I mean, you got you can get the doctor from Central yeah. Cast, John Hoyt, who's yeah. on his like last legs. It seems. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and and, and it, it was just nothing interesting. And 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 uh, Hunter, it was said before, he might have been a great movie actor, but he sure didn't bring it for that. He was so internal, and there's no sense of Spock being the stoic Spock that we got mm-hmm. later. She was fantastic yeah. in that, and. Uh, and that's a real problem, I think, if you're the network exec and the person that acted circles around everyone isn't coming back next week, right. and now you're stuck with this cast. Right, right. <laughs> so that's why don't I think People appreciate it... that, like, she didn't just play one role. That's right. She played, I mean, my God, I want to say it's like, what, three, Five. essentially? And then, like, then there's layers underneath that because right. she's got a secret. Like, it's just what she does in that episode... Is awesome. Like she's, I think you know the the reason why you watch it. That's right. And by the way, I had Robert Butler show up at one of mm-hmm. the uh, screenings we had. Robert Butler directed the cage. Yep. yep. Um, and uh, got him up on the stage. And uh, God bless him. He he kept saying, "Bless your ass for making this. Bless your ass." He was so happy <laughs> to see that movie made, that, the documentary made. But he said he was. That was if not the first thing, one of the very first things he ever directed. He had come up being a page at CBS here in L.A., I think. He started at the very bottom mm-hmm. in TV and somehow got the opportunity to direct this. And um, he said 
from what he remembers, she pretty much had, did her own thing. She had a good idea. He didn't really, he, he was so new, he didn't have much mm-hmm. to say, and she just did her thing, and he could see that it worked and stayed out of her way. Um, that's the way he related it to me. But she had a ton more experience than he did at that point. I would think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, by that point, she'd already done so much. Um, you couldn't swing a dead cat through late 50s to mid-60s <laughs> TV without hit, hitting her constantly, just to a ridiculous <laughs> degree. I mean, four wagon trains, two rawhides. By the way, something I, I, I don't know how well people know wagon train. I'd never seen it till I started researching this documentary. Mm. And I, and this is the, the tie-in to Star Trek that Gene pitched the idea as wagon train to the stars. And there's always been this, ha-ha, yeah, it's so much better than wagon train. Like wagon train, I always had this in sense that wagon train must be really bad. It's actually not. It's really good. And it's, it's, and it's one of the things that actors and actresses like her were able to hang their hat on. It's a series where if you're the guest star that week, it's different than Star Trek. Um, Star Trek is kind of a pivot point in television, I think. But those earlier shows, that was your show. Right. It was not quite pure anthology like, like Twilight Zone, but it's almost. And they brought some amazing talent into those shows. And it's your show. If you're on it, it's your show. And so it's a real showcase for you as an actor. Um, and uh, and the regulars are kind of, you know, they don't need to be acting heavyweights. They're just kind of there to keep the wagon train moving, right. and, you know, scene transition kind of stuff. So, but I was surprised. Wagon train's actually a pretty good show, so. Which explains the dynamic of the cage. Because that, you know, like you said, the regulars are basically a frame for the guest star. That's a And good she point. was definitely the guest star. That's a good point. Um, and I guess maybe you could credit the NBC executives with saying television is changing. This is not what we want. Because clearly, when you get the Shatner cast, they are the stars yeah, of the show. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. that's the way television would work for years thereafter, right. yeah. you know. Um, and it still probably works that way. It's the, it's the stars who are the stars, not the other way around. Now, of course, there's a very famous photo of... Um, uh, Susan on the set of the cage holding up the sign where are you Oscar talking about Oscar Katz who was the Desilu right. that had a Desilu who had, was in part of hiring her and who went uh, you know kind of AWOL because the show was going way over schedule can you talk a little bit about the origin of that uh, photo and, and, and what was going on there well, I, I thought really it was more a joke about her being upset at how long that makeup was taking. That mm. was the, she's in the aging makeup, right? And it's still frame photography. And I think it literally was like a half a day or all mm. day affair for her, and it was pretty trying. Um, so that's all I've heard about it. I mean, you may know more about it than I do. Yeah, I mean the the, the thing was they were so over schedule, and and she I think had something booked you know, on the heels of it. Mm. And it's like, and then she couldn't get Oscar on the phone to like find, her, find <laughs> out. We went kind of AWOL, you know, uh, to find out what, like, when am I, when are we going to finish this? When is this thing going to be wrapped? And, um, you know, was, that was part of the, the thing when, you know, Desilu, when the show got picked up, it was like, would Desilu do the second pilot? Mm-hmm. Because the first pilot had cost so much money um, and, and been so expensive, they're going to have to deficit so much money. Um, but obviously it paid off. And I've got to hand it to Roddenberry. The, 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 the ability to write an envelope sh- two-part show around that and make it work, make it work perfectly as yeah. far as I'm concerned, it's amazing. 
mm-hmm. that he was able to even figure out why Spock is there. I mean, the only thing he couldn't explain is why Spock has emotions and is smiling when he, and almost like a little kid when he sees that flower, which right. is an embarrassingly bad moment. <laughs> Not as embarrassingly bad, though, as in Where No Man Has Gone Before. It is the most embarrassingly bad expository writing I've ever seen in an episode of Star Trek when they're playing 3D chess. And I don't remember what the emotion is, but mm-hmm. he's like, you look perplexed, Spock, or something like that, because he bests in Irritated, Mr. Irritated. <laughs> Irritated. Oh, yes, one of your Earth emotions. Yeah. I'm thinking, okay, this guy whose mother is human, he's been around humans for years, right. he's worked up to first hour, and he's just remembering that humans have emotions. That's, But clearly that's expository writing, right? Sure. We need to know who he is. One, one, of, one of the things I think that the, the documentary so successfully does is, you know, at the time, Susan, this is just another episode of TV. She never realized this would be her legacy, you know, and of course... She went on and not only did great work before, but a lot of great work afterward, a lot of significant. And yet, you know, if people remember Susan Oliver at all who haven't watched her documentary, it's for that, you know, one hour of television or two hours. Or even just that one still in the closing Or that one still of the green. green. Piece of of Star Trek trivia, as I discovered in making the documentary, that is not one still. Every one of them is a little different, and I think they just took a couple of seconds of film, and there's 24 frames per, and they just Mm -hmm. grab a frame and put it on there. But if you notice, that pose moves. (laughs) I know, because I went through through trying to find the best one to use in the documentary. Some of them are dirty, and I realized that the pose is not constant. So obviously they're just wow. cutting single frames out of something they didn't use, which, which of course makes sense. Yeah, sure. Because yeah. you know, back in the day when you were you know cuting negative, it's like you know rather than, than duping the same thing right. over and over, you'd like right. just take a different frame. Yeah. Why why yeah. pay to have it made when you have it already? Yeah, yeah that's so interesting. I was going to say, I do feel bad for her too that she she did get to go to some of the early Star Trek conventions, but. Not the kind of the way creation puts them on now and the way you can just show up and have this great fan base right. and, and you know, make a little money. And I don't begrudge any of those actors one bit when you realize that they've never made a cent after right. maybe the first two reruns of that show ran in the late 60s. Um, that she missed out on a lot of that. Yeah. But she did go to a Star Trek convention once, didn't she? At least, yeah, in '76 in New York, one of the, if, if not the first, one of the very first. Um, that, that we have a photo of her with that, um, and I think she might have even dropped in once or twice in the '80s. I know I was talking to, not directly, but I talked to uh, the other Green Girl from the original series, Yvonne Craig, mm-hmm. and she remembers seeing Susan probably in '80 in the '80s sometime. They were having a big celebration over at Paramount, mm-hmm. and Roddenberry was still alive, and. They kind of would stand next to each other talking. They were a little, the way the way Yvonne Craig described it. They were a kind of detached, because I mean they were old series kind of right. like and not really major players in the thing. So they were kind of off to the side. But so yeah, I'm sure she still had a few fingers in the Star Trek pie here and there. Yeah, it was the, the 25th anniversary party. They had mm-hmm. a big party on the lot to celebrate Star Trek. And I know Yvonne talks about it's the first time she'd seen Majel in a long time because they had been in a um, an actor's. Um, uh, the 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 uh, basically uh, like a hostel like a like a hostel for actors who just right. arrived so that was the, the he hadn't he had seen Majel and she says oh my God Majel Barrett how are you and 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 Majel says it's Majel Roddenberry now and, <laughs> and she goes oh well I don't keep up on the gossip and Majel said nice to see you Yvonne and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh. it's, 
But uh, it, it's so <laughs> it's so funny. So do you, did, did you have a sense of what Susan thought of the makeup? Obviously, that's so, you know, um, Majel tells the story, you know, and there's a famous story Gene would tell about how they kept sending it out to the lab and uh, it kept coming back natural and they couldn't understand why it wouldn't show up be green because they were color correcting it because they didn't think it was supposed to be green. Right. It, it, what, what were Susan's thoughts about this famous makeup? Well, all she said was that when she walked out on the set in that makeup and that outfit for the first time, that that. The vibe was very different mm-hmm. towards her. I mean, I can't imagine it's probably mostly all male crew right. for the most part, and uh, they were behaving very differently. And she kind of got a kick out of that. <laughs> those camera tests were on Majel, right? In the, the Majel, that's what I'm saying. Right. They were Majel, right. yeah, because Susan was shooting something else. Correct. So Majel did all the camera tests, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think at one point, um, she talks about how um, they broke for lunch, and so she. They in the green makeup and Spock and Leonard in the ears went to go have lunch right. off the the uh, lot, you know, at like the diner nearby, and mm-hmm. it was. They said it was quite a scene. Wow. Um, um, you know. Yeah, but, but she she it must have been stunning to see her come out in that. Yeah, and she wasn't wearing much either. And and as as Larry Nemechek said in my documentary, you didn't get to do that a lot in 1964. Well, really, at all in right. 1964. Well, I mean, look, the two most iconic, you know, sort of. You know, images in movies and TV, you know, of, of that, or, you know, it's kind of like in Goldfinger, Shirley Eaton, you know, is the gold girl in, in Goldfinger. Then you have, you know, in television, uh, Susan Oliver is the green, you know, the green Orion slave girl. And, right. uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's amazing because, of course, uh, Star Trek's been paying homage to that, you know, ever since, you know, recently is what Star Trek 2009, uh, you know, Rachel Nichols and, mm-hmm. and, and Enterprise did it and stuff, but never better. I mean, even we talked about Yvonne Craig, but never better than Susan Oliver because there was so much going on there. It was not just about being sexy or about right. being green or, you know, but, uh, you know, when we when, when you find out that the truly the tragedy, you know, that's befallen her, that she, you know, and, and that we didn't have the tools for putting her back together. And, of course, that wonderful scene at the end where we find out, you know, what she really looks like. Um, and, and I imagine that must be very liberating because here's a woman who had been drudged on her, on her looks a lot to then, you know, have this thing where she gets to play this character that's completely mangled and deformed. And, uh, you know, that was pretty, you know, um, powerful for, for television of that era. Yeah, no, I, I think the script itself is a very good script. I think the story is great and the concept was great. Um, if anything, I think it's, to me, that story and that concept behind it is better than the second pilot. But mm-hmm. it's just the execution. Like I said, mainly that I think it boils down to that cast. The chemistry mm-hmm. just wasn't there. So, you know, but they both served their purpose. They were just kicking off points. Oh, also, I should say probably the most cringeworthy moment ever in original series Star Trek is in the cage, the original cage, when they say set course for Talos Four, and then they play the musical montage with right. them staring at the screen, pointing at it and talking with right. no... I'm like, and I, think they, I think they saw that and they're like, yeah, no, that doesn't work. Let's mm. never do that again. <laughs> no, well, I thought you were going to say it's Leonard going, the women. The women. Well, yeah, yeah. I love oh, that. I love that, too. I'll just do that out of context sometimes right. around Star Trek people. The women. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's so interesting to talk to Star Trek guest stars now because... You, no one had a clue. You know, you, you, you talked to Barbara Luna, Michael, uh, Forrest. Uh, Michael Forrest, or Gary Lockwood. It's like, you know, it was just another show among a bunch of shows that we were doing at the time. They all, too, you know, cannot believe that, you know, 
50 plus years on, you know, people want them for conventions. People want to talk to them about that. I mean, they don't remember what yeah. they did. I think they're inventing stories. I talked to Barbara Boucher recently for a Bond book and um, uh, who was in uh, by any other name. And it's like, she's like, ah, I don't really remember. She, she had great stories about going to conventions, but she's like, I don't remember anything about shooting that show. Right. It was just another gig. You know, in her case, too, you brought this up earlier. I forgot the hook on it. Um, it was in the can and, and on a shelf, and it was not going to come out. And so she really, it was just something she did for two weeks and got paid and never got released. And then yeah. two years later, it suddenly shows up on the air as flashbacks to other episodes. Right. Yeah. So it came as a big surprise for her. And I can tell you, too, as a kid that grew up in L.A. in the 70s in the rerun era, um, that was a big deal when that two-parter, sh- the Menagerie, showed. They would advertise that on TV, mm-hmm. the, two, around mm-hmm. the TV guide, that the two-parter was coming. And it was kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Same so. in New York. I mean, when the Menagerie was on, they usually showed it on Friday nights. Yeah. You remember outside of the, the 6 o'clock uh, time slot on Fridays? It would be on, like, you know, 9 to 11. You know, they, they showed yeah. the two-parter. Um, but uh, so then, you know, Star Trek's done and she moves on with her career to do other things. What happens after that in the life of Susan Oliver? Well, I mean, I, I think it was um, after that she did Peyton Place, which is the other thing I guess she's reasonably well known for because she did 49 episodes. And she hmm. pulled what you might call a Susan Oliver. I don't think there was any plan for her not to continue to be on it. And I think she just suddenly decided, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and suddenly she's <laughs> off a cliff and wow. dead. Um, she did that a lot. Kathleen Nolan told me that, that she and Kathy got to be good friends after an Alfred Hitchcock hour, and, and Kathy married her, Susan's manager. And she said, Susan could be someone you could spend every day with for six weeks. She helped me be my bride. She was my bridesmaid, all that maid of honor, whatever. And all of a sudden she just disappeared, and you won't see her for like a month. So as someone said, I think this is a reasonable fit. She may have been an introvert, um, and as as expressive as she could be and outgoing and seem comfortable on camera or in interviews, actually less so in interviews. She could be kind of awkward in interviews. Mm. I think she really needed alone time, the way something like very sensitive to outside stimuli, and so it probably was very hard for her to stay locked into anything. She could do the quick gig, but. Because I know she turned down. She she had a chance for a, a, a sitcom sometime in the mid-60s. Turned it down, turned them down more than once. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to get locked in. And that's another one of those things where and I, I make that point in the documentary. I mean, we pretty much know Barbara Eden for one thing. We know Elizabeth Montgomery for one thing. He had, uh, one of the guys in my, in my documentary said, we even know Pat Crowley from one thing that only lasted a season and a half. Please don't eat the daisies, but we know Pat Crowley, right? Yeah. But, I mean, if you weren't on a series where it's, it, you know. Right. It, and the other irony is a lot of what she did was not out there for you to see. I had to really dig hard. Now, since then, it's become more available. That All the streaming platforms are digging through their archives. But, I mean, I... I even use footage we found on YouTube or stuff that uh, Susan Oliver fans would send me. Mm. You have to filter the heck out of it because it's got like someone's running a hair dryer in the next room, <laughs> analog TV, you know. Nice. But you do what you got to do. Um, so for me, that was also a kind of an exciting sense of discovery. Every time she was in something, just the, I, oh, I got something in the mail. Let's mm-hmm. check this out. Let's see what this is. So, um, yeah, she continued to the TV. She Then she really kind of started turning down roles to get ready for that flight across the Atlantic. I know she turned down an Ironside. She wrote about that. Um, and then that was really unfortunate, too, because she was supposed to fly to Moscow, and she get and she does the treacherous part across the Atlantic in a single-engine plane alone. 
And um, then she lands in somewhere in northeastern Europe, and it's one more leg to Moscow, and that's a no-brainer leg. It's all over land, right? They wouldn't let her fly in at the last minute. The Soviets mm. changed their mind. Huh. So the press bills it the flight that failed, and she comes home a failure. Mm. And she also has a big breakup with this daredevil acrobat flyer who she'd been dating who didn't want her to risk her life out there over the Atlantic, so he dumped her. And it was really, she had kind of an ugly time of it. And then she had to do this show, The Outsider, with Darren McGavin. And she's all, she talks about it. She's like, I'm looking at my skinny bones. I've lost 10 pounds in a bikini on Malibu. And, and she got a very, a real sad performance in that. But she continued to perform. Um, did a few bad movies, but a lot of television, just redoubled the television, and really hit the television hard till about 74, 75, and then she wanted to do the directing thing. And took, you know, only did sporadic acting after that until the 80s again, and I think really what it came down to is she was running out of money and needed to keep her benefits alive. And right. So, yeah, uh, it's just sad that she tried so hard and so long. She did a short, um, it's a fun little short. I, I actually unearthed um, for a. It was originally an AFI project, and then I think she went back and reshot it herself in about '77 with Ted Cassidy mm-hmm. and uh, Woody Strode, <laughs> and uh, what's his name? The chief from um, he's a famous uh, Indian actor. The chief from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh yeah, uh, he's in it. Yeah, I mean it was it was a nice little short. Um, but it, despite all her efforts, they just weren't going to let her direct, you know. So, it, I don't know. There was a rumor that right before she got sick, she got cancer in 89. Colorectal cancer took her out. Um, she was going to move to New York and try and get back into theater. Um, and I just think she had a third act in her, at least, mm-hmm. you know. And she just unfortunately didn't get the chance. And I think she lost the will to keep fighting. Because it's sure. just too many disappointments. Is there anything after you finished the documentary that you learned about her that wasn't in the documentary that you were surprised? Because I'm sure you know people respond. You went on a lot of film festivals. Maybe there were people you didn't talk to for the documentary who said, "Oh, I knew Susan." Or, or... well, just maybe uh, solidifying certain things. I suspected. I know that um, what's his name? He was the second lead, the younger guy on Trapper John. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I want to say Harrison. Jason, Gregory Harrison. Gregory yeah. Harrison, that's him. Yeah, he said, oh, yeah, no, that would have been Purnell. New actors, new directors. Purnell was awful, you know. <laughs> so I think that that, that, that and I think like I said, unfortunately, that slammed the door on her doing further directing. They, they, uh, she got a, an undeserved bad reputation for that episode. Um, I did, the family then in the last minute let me see some correspondence I hadn't seen before about um, some of her childhood. She had a pretty terrible childhood um her father was a drunk and her mother kicked her out and the mother was very high maintenance her mother was this albatross around her neck for the rest of her life and in fact she died a year and a half after her mother Mm. it's almost like once the mother was dead her mission was done right right. um and i think it explains why she never got married i mean she was always caring for her mother um so, I mean, some of that just got reinforced more in the circumstances of that. But I, I, I don't know that there's any specific facts that I, I – I mean, oh, God, I wish we'd gotten that one in there. It's just mm. like I said. There was, I talked to 40 different people, and they, there are 40 different interviews yeah. in there. So we got a pretty decent cross-section. Did you find when you were going to people that it was pretty easy to get people to talk, or did you have to really uh... – Depends on the person. Yeah. You know who didn't want to talk? And Pernell Roberts was still alive at the time with the Trapper John people. 
Mm. The only one who would was Charles uh, Seibert, who mm. played the second, like the, the humorous lead doctor on it. And like I said, he started directing that. And then I think he had quite a career in the 90s directing Xena Warrior Princess episodes, but he cut his chops on that show. Um, but no one else was comfortable talking. Um, they did not want to talk. Uh, there was a sense that, yeah, Pernell Roberts was a problem, but I think while you're still alive, people didn't want to say. Right. And uh, and then there were certain people that uh, their agents wanted money, and, I, and I'm I'm pretty sure those people never even heard that I called. You mm-hmm. know, so I, I my, were those my, the Star Trek actors? <laughs> <laughs> no, they weren't actually. Um, but I was a little miffed because at least one of them she'd had a relationship with um, in the mid '60s, and they hadn't been in a big movie together. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, that's kind of to me that's a little bit crummy, but. I don't know. You know, you, you try to make an end run around agents and managers, and sometimes you succeed, sometimes you don't. But the other thing I had to appreciate, too, some of these people were very old. One guy was very old, and he just, I don't do interviews anymore. And I and I was miffed about it. Then he goes to New York to do something rare, and he has a heart attack while he's there. <laughs> the health is an issue. Even right. just coming into their home and, mm-hmm. and doing an interview, that's a big ordeal for them. So I appreciate that. There's only so much people can do. You know? Well, there was also a ticking clock, because like you said, so many of the people yeah. you know, were old. It's like, if you don't get them now, I mean, we had the yeah. same thing when we were writing, uh, you know, the, the book about the original Star Trek and later about Bond. It was like, you know, in the, over the course of doing the interviews and, and people were dying, you know, we, yes. we, key people, key figures. I mean, I remember, you know, it's like we, we felt like the Grim Reapers because when we were doing the Star Trek book, like Leonard passed away, Hart Bennett, uh, Bernie Williams. I mean, it was just a, it seemed every week it was something we were like we were in a race against time to get people. Yeah. Um, and uh, and what was the response? You know, you went on the festival circuit, and what, what kind of response? Yeah, we went. We won several um, several awards from different festivals, audience awards and stuff. And um, I felt really good about that. I should mention too that I brought in a um, a younger. She was actually she turned thirty while we were editing. Female editor. I thought it was very important to do that. And I should note how much there was a there was a guy I knew, and he did some content for like MTV in the past. He was miffed that I would shut the door to male editors. That why would I do that? <laughs> I didn't even want to have that debate, you know. But I'm like, okay, it's a woman's story. It's a woman got screwed over by Hollywood, mm-hmm. which I have no real personal experience with. Why don't I get a woman's mm-hmm. perspective? And I like the fact that she was younger. She had no idea who Susan Oliver was. Right. She said the most hilarious thing. We were um, we were going through the footage of Susan's episode of. Um, Streets of San Francisco, which unfortunately was the final season, the Richard Hatch season. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but I showed her, I showed her the uh, Robert Wagner, Kim Darby pilot while we were having lunch one day, uh, part of it, you know, which I think is one of the greatest pilots ever of a TV show in that era. And she says, "I didn't know Michael Douglas was on Streets of San Francisco." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Are you kidding? This is why he's famous. Other than a footnote in his father's biography, it's a show." <laughs> so. Um, but it was great because she, she so she didn't bring any of the Get baggage or preconceived right notions that I did. Plus, she was a woman, and there were certain times she brought certain things in. So, she, and and she got some awards too. And I and actually at one point we got a posthumous um, lifetime achievement award for Susan because of the documentary, which I felt really great about because I I think there was so much she didn't get recognized for. You know, when she died in the eighties or ninety, she died. It was pre-nostalgia times. I mean, mm-hmm. now everyone's getting those things. Right. Uh, but this was decades before that. What did the family, what was the family's reaction when they saw it? Really nice. Um, I mean, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean the guy, the, the former. Uh, I'll just tell you who the senator. The, the, he was a congressman, Congressman Chris Shays of oh, yeah. uh, of Connecticut. Yeah, was one of her cousins, um, and he sent me a personal message thanking me so much for that, and and so did some of the other Shays family, and uh, and then uh, the other side of the family, our father's side of the family, they they also. Um, they were all really, really appreciative that I did that. And like I said, I felt like I owed them taking this to the finish and showing them what I'd done. And I should mention this, too, the music for it. We got so lucky, the score for it. Um, that's from the Shays side of the family, Lyle Workman. He is, um, I guess you'd call him an A-list movie score guy. He did Superbad, uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. He does a lot of those mm-hmm. type. Um, and he's also like Sting's touring guitarist, and he's done Beck tours before. He's a wonderful musician. He's married to Susan's niece. Uh-huh. And so Susan's niece, who's in the documentary, she said, you know, he didn't really get much of a chance to meet her. She was at our wedding right before she got sick, but this would be a really nice thing. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll just stay out of the way. You know, right. He just gave it to me. He's like, here are the cues. I'm like, yeah, okay, slide it in. Don't uh-huh. even think about it. You know, how, what could I add to, oh, no, this timing isn't right. Absolutely not. I just let him do it, and it was wonderful. And when, so. when you were at that convention, I mean, who do you find the audience is? Are, are, is it a lot of Star Trek fans? Because obviously you hung this on the Star Trek. It's called the Green Girl. The main image on the poster is her as the Green Orion Slave Girl. You know, did, I think that was very, you know, cagey to sort of cagey. use Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. And, um, uh, you know, to, to sort of use Star Trek as the marketing element. But, you know, the thing is, obviously, Star Trek is a small part of, of a really incredible career, and, and that's it's what I really one respond small to. sample. Yeah, but what I, I <laughs> what I what I love about the documentary is, is, yeah, Star Trek in that way is the gateway drug. You watch it because oh, I know, it. but then you watch and you say, oh yeah. my god, mm-hmm. this is unbelievable. I had, no yeah. I had no idea. I mean, she's so extraordinary, and it's like when you start to hear about her being an aviator, and you hear about her being one of the first uh, female directors in television, and it just. Um, it's just really wonderful, and that's why I'm so glad to be able to showcase it. What, what, what did you find, um, uh, you know, in terms of like when you were going to the Star Trek conventions? What was the kind of reaction you were getting? Was it was it a tough sell? Because you know, a lot of these people they only care if it's not you know Shatner and Nimoy. It's like uh, you know. Well, yeah, it was. A t- I got to be honest, it was a tougher sell than I thought. Now that said, I think we sold someone like 52 DVDs that weekend, which is not bad, um, but. And it was a tough sell in a way you haven't mentioned. It was a tough sell in that there's a lot of people at the convention don't know TOS. Right. And they don't really care about it, which is funny. I'm like the anti that. All Mm -hmm. I care about is TOS, really, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, But uh, so that was interesting. And then um, I would say more and more I've marketed it on Facebook and stuff. I target baby boomer men. Because one of the guys in the interview, I don't think it made the cut, but he even said it. He's like, all the baby boomer men in America grew up with a crush on Susan Oliver, one of their first crushes. And uh, and that seems to be mainly who who's on the uh, on the Facebook page is uh, just all these. Occasionally a woman, but for every woman, there's like 100 guys. Yeah. I mean, they just, they all, she was one of their first crushes. And yes, it's much broader interest. And really, if you want to say what her niche was more than anything, it was probably the Westerns of the late mm-hmm. 50s to mid 60s. Sure. It's just on all of them. I was shocked in my research to find, I think it was the 58, 59 primetime season, there were 34 Westerns on primetime television. Wow. I didn't even know there were 34 Westerns. Right, yeah. <laughs> a lot of them were the half-hour ones, right? Like sure. Wanted Dead or Alive with McQueen but uh, or Rifleman. But right. 
it was all westerns. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. We talk about like directors who, you know, who are chameleons, and they don't get the kind of uh, attention that somebody who spe- like everyone knows Hitchcock because he's the master of suspense, and people know John Ford, you know, from his westerns and his war movies. But um, you know, it's the people who can go from genre to genre to genre who who don't aren't as well known. And in a way, you know, Susan Oliver never became famous for one thing, and as a result, she's not as well known as you know maybe people who are well known for like that one thing or that one genre that they did. Yeah, that, that's true, too, because even as I was watching stuff to include in the documentary, I realized, oh, I've seen this. That was Susan Oliver? I mean, I didn't even recognize mm. her when I first saw it, like an episode of I Spy with uh, mm. Dane Clark, and I didn't realize that she was his girlfriend. And she's got a prominent role in the thing. And and Amelia Earhart, made for movie, made-for-TV movie from 76 with uh, Susan Clark. Uh, anyway, tell me there's a last name of Clark in there somewhere now. But I mean, I'm like, I have seen this. I had no idea that was the green girl from Star Trek, you know, because she could just become whatever the role was and just disappear into it. Well, and she did, you know, it's funny because she did so many iconic, uh, you know, shows back then. You talk about Wagon Train, but also Man from Uncle, Fugitive. I mean, all these legendary 60s shows. At some point, she showed up on one of them. Yeah, they've had Quinn Martin next to it. She was on it at least once. Yeah, mm. every Quinn Martin. Yeah. In fact, you'll love this as as from a TV perspective. One of the guys I interviewed, this did not make the cut. He said there was a casting director who's a kind of an old veteran he talked to years later, said, Quinn Martin, he really liked his actors a certain way. You give me a script, the first 10 pages, I can tell you exactly who he's going to cast as these FBI agents or if it's the invaders. <laughs> they're going to be the 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 nameless you know aliens that way. Yeah. Who the woman's going to be? You know, he he knew who Quinn Martin would want to cast for every Quinn part. Martin production. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and I got to ask you, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, recently I guess Star Trek Discovery um, went back and mined the cage, and they had. Um, uh, Melissa George. Uh, Melissa George uh, uh, in the role of Vina. Did you take? Did you look at that? And what did you think? I did not. I got to be honest with you. I've never watched any of that. Um, I just, I was, you know, I get so busy, you know, these days, and I just, uh, I tried to watch the Next Generation, and I've, I've probably watched twenty episodes ever. I mean, back in '87 when it first mm-hmm. came on, and. And it seemed, and then I've heard people say, "Oh yeah, no, you had to get through the first season. Really, it started to take off." I remember the Borg season was pretty interesting, but I just never really jumped into the other series, so I don't know much about it. Well, I want to ask you then. I mean, you know, kind of Melissa George was, you know, their homage to um, Susan Oliver. I mean, you know, other shows have sort of done homages. I mean, Rachel Nichols and that, but this was supposed to be playing the Susan Oliver role. What did you think of that? Oh, look, I thought that Melissa George was actually quite good. I mean, I, I think it helped her a lot, or it helped that role a lot that uh, that Anton Mount was kind of the, the person that she was she was playing against. I, I think that, that uh, you know, he's, he's just, he's a great actor. He brings a lot um, to it. Uh, but what was asked of her, I don't think had the same, I don't think it was the same level of difficulty of the dive as what Susan Oliver was asked to do, because when we're watching Melissa George play Vina, we're we're watching somebody play Vina, right? And we either know what that's about or we don't. Um, but there's no real there's no real secret, and that's the thing that you know. I, I whenever I think about that episode and I think about her, it's just 
it's those layers of performance that she's bringing because there is a character within the character within the character, you know, and the, the more, you know, I mean, I've been in this business for 20 years and I've known a lot of actors and, you know, I know what goes into it. And it, it's, it's amazing when an actor truly finds a, a character with just a layer. You know what I mean? Right. And that's not to cast aspersions on actors. It's just that it's a, it's a hugely difficult job. And that she found what she found in that, right? And it's a pilot. Like you said, it's a two-week shoot. It's a little thing she tossed off in the Caribbean. You know, it just, it didn't have to be all that, but she brought something to it um, that I think it just, you can't really compare it. Yeah. Well, I want to say, you know, I hope that after people listen to this podcast, they want to run out and see... Uh, the documentary, The Green Girl. Uh, where can people uh, get this? Uh, if they don't see you at convention selling it. <laughs> yeah, which I don't think you will anymore. Uh, just getting to the convention, that was pretty costly. <laughs> um, well, um, it, iTunes, uh, Voodoo, which is uh, Walmart's. You can either rent it or buy it. Um, Amazon, you can, like, if you have Prime, you can stream it for free now. If you want the director's commentary, um, it's just me not shutting up at all for 93 minutes. <laughs> um, you got to get the DVD. And I've got I've had people grass at me before that it's not available on Blu-ray, but I mean we were very budget constrained and given my target demographic of baby boomers, I'm thinking these are this is the classic I bought a DVD player 10 years ago. Now right. I got to buy this a blue thing. Right. <laughs> so I figured okay, we'll make it we'll make it DVD. So you can get the DVD on Amazon too. Right. And uh, so those are the main outlets, iTunes. Um, those are the places you'll find. Fantastic. Great. Well, look, I think you know everyone. Every Star Trek fan owes you a debt of gratitude for you know shining the spotlight on Susan Oliver and and what a remarkable woman she was. And it's it really, like I said, I was so struck when I saw the documentary, and I was so glad to include you and your your thoughts on in the book and Fifty Year Mission. But you know, I appreciate you coming down to talk about it. Um, because it's not just the face at the end of the credits. Your There's documentary a... is the guide for putting her back together. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, well. Is that how we explain the hump? It's <laughs> oh, no. terrible. But, uh, well, thank... it, it was an honor. Thank you. I really appreciate that. No, thank you, George. Thanks, Ashley. Great thank having you. you back. Thank you. And thank you, America. And, uh, <laughs> and all the ships at sea. For, yeah. And all the ships at sea. Thank you for joining us for Inglorious Trexperts. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts like the 430 movie every Friday and the Rebel and the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast every Tuesday, as well as Best Movies Never Made every other Monday. You can also watch video podcasts of your favorite Electric Surge shows on Electric Now, which is uh, available currently on Stir and Distro TV, but soon to be available on its very own app. And, uh, um, we're really excited about that because you get to actually see what it was like to be in the room with us and all the <laughs> all the weird expressions we're making towards Ashley. So, you can uh, smell the Shake Shack. <laughs> you can smell the Shake Shack. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And to uh, get the latest updates, um, you can go and follow Electric Surge on Facebook or go to Inglorious Trek on Twitter or Inglorious Trek Experts on Instagram. And finally, after all that schmoozing, uh, a very special thanks to uh, Bill Ritter for giving us the amazing sound and uh, mix and, and making it sound so great, as he does every week. And, of course, our producer, Natalie Miscali, who hopefully found this more interesting than some of the previous episodes. And, uh, <laughs> of course, uh, a very special thanks to Dean Devlin, without whom this show would not be possible. So until next Saturday, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course. Engage. Engage. <laughs>
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.